When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. We are bringing back another lost episode today with Vex. I don't know if you'd call him the OG, but definitely one of the most respected strength coaches in the hockey world. And his name is Mike Boyle. For those of you who haven't heard of him, uh, he is based out of the Boston area. He trains a ton of NHL clients, used to work with BU and their hockey program. Uh, But before we do get over to Mike, let's bring on another pretty decent strength coach in a one Jeffrey J. Hulovechkio. Vex, what's up today, brother? Not much, my man. Uh, Yes, I would call him. I would call him the the man, the myth, and the legend. This guy changed my career uh, without me ever meeting him. Just reading one of his books, which then changed uh, or allowed me to to help thousands. Now, you know, in the last fifteen, sixteen years since I read that book, um, with with thinking more the way that he trains people versus the way that you know they were training hockey players back in you know early 2000s when we were playing college hockey and stuff like that so this guy is a legend and he puts out more information than any coach i've ever seen like non-stop free information and for somebody at the highest level to be doing that every single day is uh is really really uh admirable and it helps so many coaches uh yeah dude this is the just so cool that we got him on the podcast, especially so early in our podcast when it wasn't as big as it is now. Yeah. And for everybody that doesn't know, so we've been putting lost episodes out there and what the lost episodes are, uh, they are basically when we got um, under Blue Wire Podcast Umbrella, which is the podcast parent company that we're under right now, we had to transfer all of our episodes from our hosting site over to their hosting site. And for whatever reason, our first 48 episodes got lost. And, uh, but luckily I had all of the audio files on a hard drive. And so these episodes that we're putting out there, uh, they're pretty much three to four years ago. And they were ones that had the most impact on us as podcasters. And from the feedback from you guys, uh, just had a great impact. And so Mike Boyle is one of the top strength coaches I'd probably say in the world. And he just so many great things that he talks about here. So we wanted to bring this one back. We do know there are a lot of strength coaches that listen to this podcast because of X, which is really, really cool. And I think they're going to get a lot out of it. But I also think that there's a lot of great hockey stuff out of this too, for any coaches and parents and players out there as well. Mike was uh, a strength coach for Boston University, like I said, uh, when they won a few of their national championships with Jack Parker and 
you know, going back and listening to the episode is really cool to hear him talk about how Jack Parker, who's a legendary college hockey coach at BU was basically like, Mike, okay, you're the head coach of the team during the off season. Like I'm not the coach, you're the coach. And so it's just really interesting, their relationship, how important a strength coach's relationship with their players are uh, throughout a season. And then he also talks about some of the guys that he's trained that have gone on to play in the NHL and things like that. People all the way as old as like, you know, Jeremy Roenick and Tony Amante all the way to the Jack Eichels of the world today. So uh, just really, really, really cool episode. And uh, Vex, I remember when we first reached out to Mike to see if he wanted to come on. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. You were like the most giddy person I've ever seen in the entire world. Like a kid in a candy store is hilarious. I truly was. I can't lie at all. Like you could be like, <laughs> oh, somebody, you know, famous is coming in and I, okay, whatever. Mike Boyle. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, it was really cool. And I don't know if you remember, um, I was in the process of selling my house at the time. So I was staying at my parents while we were showing the house and uh my like it was just a, a discombobulated all over the place my computer died in the middle of the podcast and i had to like run around and find chargers and get back on it was so embarrassing but mike <laughs> mike's a great guy and um yeah people people are gonna love this and there's one thing i, I can't remember because i haven't listened to it again yet till you put it out but i can't remember if he said it on this podcast or if it's something that i've read or he's told me you know talking to him online um because we do that not a big deal um sprinting before practice did, did you hear that in the podcast i think so it? i think so i yeah. really like that idea and i took that and i brought it to my team and i we we uh i, I was assistant coach at the time of a u16 triple a team and we started implementing that into our first shooting drill making it like a, a sprint from like goal line to blue line or like blue line to the top of the circles um we implemented it also into uh making it you'd have to shoot and stride at the end but players are always saying like, how do I get faster? How do I get faster? How do I get faster? And like, we got to go fast to get fast. And so he said, um, at the beginning of practice, have your players do just three or four sprints or whatever, absolute top speed. Uh, and I love that. And I have my guys in the off season do that from the NHL down to, you know, the 16 year old AAA players I train. And I'm like, on some days I'll, I'll program it into my workout, but it's for the ice when they go on the ice, um, right after. And I'm like, okay, like you have to do five sprints to start the day from this distance to this distance. I want this much time in between. Um, so it's just really cool. Like, you know, a lot of strength coaches just think about in the gym and, and he was telling coaches what to do on the ice. So I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great conversation. A lot of really good stuff for a lot of different uh, variations of people, let's call it. So good, good, good stuff. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you actually, as a dad, so I saw on the gram, Mr. Blue Checkmark over there, that you went on a podcast um, and I, I couldn't tell you what the guy's name was, but it's all about like dads and like how to be a better dad and stuff. So I wanted to ask you what you, well, first of all, I can probably plug the podcast. It'd be pretty cool for any dads that are listening to this, but also like, what did you kind of take out of it? What were some of the things that you talked about and he talked about? Yeah, it was really, really cool. It's called the dad edge. Larry's an awesome, awesome guy. Um, actually just got his podcast sponsored by first form, which, uh, which is pretty awesome because I mean, I'm, I'm a, a uh, athlete with them. So we had that connection right away, but really cool podcast. We talked a lot about, um, 
how my interactions were with my dad growing up. And, and then, you know, he asked me about my story and we went through my concussion stuff and, and that, and that stuff and resiliency and, you know, told him about my career and how, you know, starting at a young age, like I wasn't good enough to just play hockey. I had to like do all the other things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. And we got into like, well, he's like, well, how did you, well, how did you have that like idea to like do that type of stuff? And it was all because of my dad. I mean, you know, you know, Philly cheese entrepreneur own his own business for, I don't know, 50 years, 40, 40, at least 40 years now. <clears throat> and the guy is the biggest animal of all time. You know, if something needs to be done. I've never heard that guy complain, not like, like a joking complaint, but I've never heard that guy complain for real. I've never heard that guy say, poor me anything that needs to be done. He's just doing it. Like, and we talked about, uh, and, and obviously that had an effect on me and he's, he, you know, I love writing down, uh, little quotes and things that, that help you. And one of them he had was that he says on his podcast, a lot, I guess is, uh, caught, not taught. And he's like, the best thing for dads is That's to, really interesting. He, like, just like, I loved it. And, and he was saying, because like, I was like, yeah, dude, my dad had come home when I was young. He, he was out of town a lot. He'd come home Friday night from the airport, 7.30, 8 p.m., be there for dinner. I'd see him maybe go and work a little bit more in his office and be asleep and wake up the next morning. And he's already done like 15 things around the house. Guy's been gone all week long, living out of a hotel, you know, working eight, 10 hour days, uh, traveling and all weekend long, he's doing work on the house and, you know, making sure everything's set up for the next week before he goes out of town again. And it was just like, again, and again, and again, he was a machine and he supported and, and did so much for our family. And I think that that mindset, that mentality of like, if it's got to be done, I'm doing it. I'll just do it. You know, I think that that really rubbed off on me from watching it. And that's where he said the, the caught, not taught, like, don't just talk about it, do it and have your son or daughter see your actions. And then that will affect, you know, how they do things moving forward. That's so, so cool. Em and I talk about that a lot, the caught, not taught, not in that way, but we're like, you know, what we do is going to teach our kids so much more than like the actual things that we say to them. Right. Right. If you're talking about health, are you healthy? Are you eating healthy? Are you boozing every night in front of them? You're talking about like the, the negative effects of alcohol. And like right now, I don't, I mean, obviously everybody knows alcohol is not good for you, but there's so much that's been coming out in the last like six months about like really how bad it is for you. Like really, really, really bad. Um, and, and okay. Are you saying to your kids in high school? So they're not idiots. Like, you know, don't go out and drink, but then you're sitting there every night boozing, you know, it's caught, not taught. So like, okay, I'm going to see dad drinking every single night. Well, I'm going to drink, you know, it's that, I think it's that kind of thing or vice I versa. Like, I feel like when we were growing up, the, the big saying was do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. <laughs> that is, it's so it's opposite, opposite of what opposite. we're talking about. It, is, it really is. It really, really is. That's and it was really always funny. a joke, but it was always like, actually, if you're talking about cotton autopsy and like really important, then it's actually mm, yeah. pretty, pretty damn important. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You're so right. And, and the other thing too, when we were growing up, I mean, I don't know how it was for you, but it was, it was because I said so. And, you know, now we always talk about how regarding hockey, the players want to know why, why, why are we doing this? Why, why are we doing that? And, and, you know, I think back to when I would get, you know, in trouble when I was a little kid and my mom be like, well, why am I going to my room, mom? Because I said so. I'm like, that doesn't help me anyway. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
I will tell you as a parent, sometimes you don't have an explanation. Oh, for sure. I, I can't even, I can't even speak. It's here. survival mode imagine. sometimes, man. <laughs> sometimes, maybe all the time, but um, all right. So uh, again, this was a, a fantastic episode with Mike Boyle. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors before we get over to him. We want to thank our title sponsor, Gel Sticks, uh, the best weighted training sticks. You can get hockey sticks, lacrosse sticks, or golf clubs. And uh, go to Gel Sticks, G-E-L-S-T-X.com. Use the coupon code Think Tank one word, and you can get a discount on your weighted training aids, Jeffrey. I want to thank uh, Train Heroic as well. That's the app where I house all of my online clients, thousands of them, the programs, the teams I work with. Um, just want to say thank you for giving me that ability and then the train with me program. And I want to bring that up again here because if you're, we're talking about caught, not taught, we're talking about, you know, leading by example. And um, if you're stuck in the gym, if you want to, you know, be a better role model for your son or daughter regarding health and being in shape and investing in your future, which, you know, is your health. Um, I have a train with me program. It's a dollar 16 a day. It's $35 a month all the videos on there, you literally open your phone, you go to the gym and you just do what it says. There's videos coaching you through form and X and everything like that. So, uh, you know, I've got like 150 people right now doing with me. I've had people doing with me for almost two years. Uh, their transformations are unbelievable, both physically and mentally because it will challenge you. So if anybody's looking for that, um, you can go to my Instagram. I always have it on there or just DM me blue check Mark guy, uh, on Instagram. And then I also want to thank Cure nutrition. That's a CBD company, uh, that I'm with CBD has been, a, a played a massive role in my health, uh, since my last year playing pro. So I think it's been six years. Uh, I have a discount with them. It's uh, GMBM on curednutrition.com. They just dropped some new gummies that have been helping me sleep like a baby. So anybody out there who's having trouble sleeping, check out those gummies, curednutrition.com, GMBM. There we go. There we go. And thank you to icehockeysystems.com, the best site for all your coaching education needs, thousands of drills, a drill drawing tool. And we have partnered with them to do an associations platform where you can get this for every single one of your coaches in your organization. You can plan practices. You can save those practices. So you have them for later dates. You can send them to your players, send them to other coaches within your organization. It's just an unbelievable tool uh, to get organized and to get some new creative ideas with all the drills that they have on their software as long as well as a ton of whiteboard explanations from unbelievable hockey minds as well. So uh, go to icehockeysystems.com, look for the associations tab and get this for all of the coaches in your organization. They also have the parent survival guide from the hockey think tank as well. So they can send this out to all of the parents in your organization. So if you are a hockey director or a coach, I guarantee you that will save you many emails, phone calls, and a lot of stress. So go to icehockeysystems.com associations tab and get access to the Hockey Think Thing Parent Survival Guide, along with all of the cool things that IceHockeySystems.com has to offer. Uh, this was a fantastic episode with Mike Boyle. We'll say a little bit of a tiny disclaimer. This is one of our first episodes, so the audio isn't what it is with our new microphones. That yeah, dude, that was today. on mic. 
I was on microphone like 14 <laughs> when we did this. Every every choice I made at Best Buy. Max's mics were so bad. Dude, they were so bad. And I was like, <laughs> I spent I spent probably like eight hundred dollars on like four or five different mics. I was like, yeah, asking people at Best Buy. Yeah, this I thought the headset was the way to go. Oh, so embarrassing. So sorry for the audio if it's bad, guys. It's but, not uh, bad. It's not bad. There's a couple iffy parts. It's just not as it, good. As, it's, as, uh, it's not like the quality that uh, you guys are used to today. It's part of learning, With part of growing. Yeah. So, but this was a really, really good one. Mike's a, a really charismatic guy, really knowledgeable, really forward thinking guy. And uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of him. So without further ado, here we go with Mike Boyle. We're really excited to have Mike Boyle, uh, one of the top leaders in the world in the strength and conditioning world uh, on our podcast. Uh, Jeff has been eagerly awaiting this episode here for a long time and uh we're really really lucky to have mike on so mike how's it going out in boston today i'm excited to be here i gotta switch so i get my plug because i just realized my computer's at 11 percent. but i'm very excited to uh to do this i love doing this I, I can the good thing about this is these are just conversations for me and i love talking about kids and training and obviously hockey is my probably largest area of interest so it's a perfect day for me. <laughs> well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time and um, just kind of getting started with it. Um, you've been doing this for a long time, but uh, taking back to the beginning, what kind of lit your fire to get into the strength and conditioning world? Um, you know, were you an athlete growing up? What kind of sports did you play? And, and uh, you know, what kind of got you into being really, really excited about becoming, uh, you know, a trainer and being into strength and conditioning? Well, I was a really bad athlete, which is a great way to <laughs> figure out how to become better athletes. So if you can imagine, I'm trying to think. So I would say I'm 47 years ago, I probably bought a 110-pounder. Actually, my father bought me a 110-pound York barbell set and a bench, and I stuck a wall chart up on my wall, and I started weightlifting 47 years ago thinking that I was going to get better at sports. I was a football player and a swimmer primarily, and I was a really good swimmer and an incredibly average football player, but I really liked football, and I didn't like swimming at all, so most of my energy went into trying to get ready for football, and swimming was just something I did in the winter because I was good at it. My dad was a high school teacher, a high school coach, a high school principal, so I always said I was sort of born into this thing. I've been going to practice legitimately for as long as I can remember. Some of my earliest memories are a big trunk in my dad's office in the gym that had medicine balls and boxing gloves and all kinds of stuff in it. My brothers and I would go in there and pull all the stuff out and put boxing gloves on and beat each other up and throw the leather medicine balls at each other. So I was pretty when the leather medicine balls came back. <laughs> That's awesome. So did you play hockey at all growing up or no? Never. I mean, pond no. hockey. so I grew up kind of, I was, you know, from Boston so I was watching the Bruins in the Big Bad Bruins era, which was interesting because then I ended up working for the Bruins and got to meet a lot of the guys that I watched as a kid. They weren't playing. They were all kind of on the alumni team and stuff like that. But those were the guys that I grew up watching. I grew up watching, you know, kind of the, the Ken Hodges and the Phil Espositos and those guys, Jerry Cheevers. So, uh, but I never played. My father was actually a basketball coach. We played pod hockey because everybody did especially at that time, the Bruins were usually popular. We played street hockey, but I've never played in an organized hockey game in my life. What? 
<clears throat> that's uh, that's pretty funny that you are the man in the in the hockey strength and conditioning world, but you've never played hockey. So yeah. I think I think Topher and I's goal with this whole podcast is I don't know if you've heard about it or anything, but it's it's to allow people avenues into higher level thinking and higher level people who've been in the game or whatever, and give them some insight into, you know, maybe a, why they were successful or how their success can, um, can kind of pave the way for the next generation. So, um, some questions that I had for you that I thought would be pertinent, you know, not every team can have a strength coach. Not every team can afford to, to have somebody come in and teach the kids, um, you know, what to do after practice to get stronger and better on the ice. So to those teams, you know, with the younger kids, what, what kind of advice would you have to the coaches to maybe run a training session after, or would you say, Hey, you shouldn't do this at all. You need to hire someone. No, I think, you know, one of my favorite guys in our field is Jeff Jackson. And I can remember Jeff when I can remember Jeff beating us when he was at, um, Lake state, when I was at Boston university and we had everything and they had nothing in terms of Jeff was the strength coach and Jeff was the hockey coach. And I can still remember his guys walking down to warm up, gray sweats, gray sweatpants, gray sweatshirt. Everybody had a jump rope and it was like watching the army. And we had, you know, BU, we got $400 sweatsuits and a strength coach and all this stuff. And they came out, they absolutely kicked our ass in an NCAA, I think in the final, I think they beat us like 6-1 in that final. And I remember going back to Coach Parker and being like, we got work to do. We got to get a hell of a lot more organized <laughs> by these guys from the freaking middle of nowhere who he had no big time recruits, but he was making, he was making players very, very early on in terms of like Jimmy Dowd and Dougie Waite. And then he had guys like Blaine Locker, guys who wouldn't even remember Sandy Moger, Clayton Bettles. They all went to play in the NHL. All those guys that were on those teams played in the NHL and they played in the NHL because he made them better. So I think, I would view it totally from the opposite standpoint in terms of saying anybody can learn enough to make their kids better. Anybody can learn enough to make them worse, too, unfortunately. But if somebody is smart and pays attention and thinks, okay, I'm going to learn. And I've done this talk at USA Hockey. If you've ever seen it, it's actually in their coaching modules. We've talked about like one dumbbell workouts and all this stuff. It's not that hard to do. You just need to do it. You need to put the time into it. You need to approach it. And this was one of the things we did really well at Boston University. I would go to Coach Parker and say, weight training, strength training, whatever we want. He always called me. I was the weight coach for a little long time. <laughs> the way we got over the hump in the 90s is we said to our best players, we went out and said, everybody's doing this. You don't want to do it. And he, Coach Parker was awesome. Like, There's nobody better than Coach Parker in the world. He's my... He's like my biggest mentor, the guy that I owe more to than anybody in the field because he was one of those guys who just realized, okay, this is going to make us better. And I went to him and said, we have to treat this exactly like we do hockey, which means guys have to be on time. Guys have to do what we ask them to do. And I, cause I was dealing with other coaches who'd say stuff like, well, I got guys who don't like to lift. And I would look at them and say, I could care less if you got guys who don't like to lift. There's a lot of things guys don't like to do. They don't like to back check. You know, they don't, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that guys don't like to do, but you have to teach them how to do it if you want to be good. And with our guys, so we started out, I mean, we're going back to, you know, Tony Monty and Keith Kachuk and Scott Chance and guys like this. When those guys came in, it was like, here's the program. Here's what you got to do. And everybody around them was doing it. This is your level of expectation. And they did it. Nobody griped. Nobody. And if they did, I would always say, uh, Coach Parker's office is open. Go tell him. Because guys, I don't want to do this. 
Perfect. Go upstairs. Let Coach Parker know. <laughs> but you guys will have a great talk. I'm sure you and him will be able to sit down and, and hash this out. And the guys would look at me like they knew. Like, what are you kidding me? I'm not going upstairs. No one ever. <laughs> ever. But because they knew, we had a meeting. And this I still remember. I think it was probably 1989. We won uh, – I think we won less than 20 games once the whole time I was there, and this was that year. And we had about six guys that went on to make the Olympic team, I think, in either 90 or 92. I think we had back-to-back Olympics winter, the way they finally switched it with winter and summer. So I think winter was 90 and 92, if my memory's right. These guys all made the 90, either, either 90 or 92 Olympic team. And we, so we had all these big guns. We had... You know, Clark Duntelli and, you know, Sean McGeckman, Joe Sacco, Mike Sullivan, a lot of, you know, guys that are coaching now in the NHL. And he sat everybody down in the meeting and he said, literally this, and I, I will use uh, some indelicate language because I'm sure kids don't probably <laughs> listen to this podcast. But he looked at everybody in the room and he said, okay, guys, we won 16 games or whatever we won. He said, I can suck like this without any of you. <laughs> I can get a bunch of walk-ons and we'll <clears throat> He said, so whoever wants to leave, he was like, I'm going up to my office right now, and whoever wants to transfer can leave this meeting when we're done and come up and talk to me, and I'll find you a place to play. I'll make calls for you. You can go anywhere you want. That's awesome. He said, when we'll never suck like this again. He said, and as a result, he said, Mike's the head coach. He said, this was probably now because we weren't in the NCAA. It was probably March. He said, Mike's the head coach until October 1st. I want you to treat him like he's the head coach. I'm sitting in the meeting looking, going, holy shit, I can't believe he's doing this. This is like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me as a strength and conditioning coach to have a guy with juice like him looking at eight or nine guys that think they're going to make the Olympic team and saying, and he's like, everybody's going to be here over the summer. And we had established that anybody who lives within 45 minutes of BU was going to come in four days a week during the summer. There's no more working on your own, no more working on home. I mean, we've literally got all these like slack jaws looking at us like, (laughs) but we went to the final four, I think eight of the 10 years during that decade in the 90s. I think we played in three final games, won one NCAA championship, and I think we went to eight final fours. Oh. But that was the start of it. And it was because, hey, there's going to be there's one. And that's the thing, like I would say to people, like when you say you've never played in a hockey game, it doesn't matter. Coaching is coaching. And it goes back. I always like there's an old, I think, I think it's Bear Bryant, but, but there's an old uh, Bear Bryant quote who says, you know, he can take his in and beat Yorin, and then he can take Yorin and beat his in. And it's like, that's the reality of the situation. A good coach, you give a good coach, you know, you give Jack Parker or Jeff Jackson or one of these guys, I don't care, give him somebody else's team, they'll be in two years. Just the way that it is. Because they'll do a better job. And a big part of doing a better job is, I used to always say, people would be like, what's so great about Coach Parker? And I'm like, he's not afraid to lose. Because he benched, he benched, I still remember he benched John Cullen one year. John Cullen's the all-time leading scorer at Boston University. Played in the NHL All-Star game. He got 160 points in the old IHL one year. <laughs> then go and play in the power play with like Mario Lemieux and Kevin Stevens and Recky and all these guys for the Penguins. Playing the NHL All-Star game. But he benched him one year for a couple games because he wasn't playing hard. That's awesome. Yeah, and he had no problem looking at guys and saying, hey, you don't play hard, you don't play. You always tell you... Good play will earn you more ice time. Bad play will earn you less ice time. And so our good – and you can talk to any of our guys that went through that program during that time, and there's a lot of good NHL players that went through it at that time. I think it was very fundamental for them in terms of learning that, you know, you were basically as good as your last game. You were as good as your last shift. And, you know, we didn't stifle anybody's creativity. We didn't tell anybody, you know, 
dump pucks in or whatever, but we did say that everybody had to work really hard. And if you didn't want to work hard, find a new school. I love that. Yep. And uh, just just kind of going along with what you're saying here. So I, I worked at Cornell for five years, and, um, you know, the strength and conditioning coach there, his name is Tom Howley, and uh, he was a strength and conditioning coach when I was a player too. And we had a very similar dynamic that, that you and Coach Parker had in terms of, like, he was a legitimate coach on our staff. We treated him like a coach. Um, you know, he was very involved in, you know, letting us know the guys who were slacking in the weight room and the guys who were really working hard. He was a huge part of our staff chemistry. He was a huge part of our culture chemistry. Um, you know, you were obviously a huge part of the BU staff, and, and, and I could see that in hearing you talk and just my experience with Coach Holly. What kind of advice would you give to maybe younger guys who aspire to be in the kinds of jobs that you had and working with teams at the higher levels? Um, because it's not just teaching kids how to lift weights. It's teaching kids how to be good teammates, teaching work ethic and all those kinds of things. You know, away from the weight side of things, what's some advice that you might give some strength and conditioning people that want to get into to the business? Well, I think one is you have to develop that relationship because I had that relationship with Coach Parker. I was there for almost 30 years with him, but I didn't in the beginning. In the beginning, I was scared shitless of him, to be honest. <laughs> and it seems really odd now because we're not as far apart in age as it seemed like we were when I was younger, but we're 15 years different, but there's a big difference between him being 74 and me being 59 and you know me being 21 and him being 36. Yeah. And I was scared, but I also, I think I stood my ground when I needed to in terms of saying, one of the things he was very concerned with was he used to always say, will this help us win? And I'd be like, yep, this is gonna help us win. Because that was his asset test fairly. He wanted to win every game. And if I said, this will help us win, and we had some good, we'd have arguments because he likes to argue. He's one of these guys. We're probably similar in the sense that we both like to be right. And that doesn't always make for the best working relationship. But in our case, it, it, it worked itself out. And I think the biggest thing, one, is in the beginning, advice for people is don't overstep your bounds because you've got to, respect is earned, not given. You can't walk in there as a 21 or 22-year-old guy and try to tell somebody who's been a head coach for 20 years what's going to happen. I think part of it is sitting down with them and saying, okay, what are your expectations for the players? What are our expectations? What would the expectation be if it was in season? So I think some of it is how do you structure the conversation? And I would structure the conversation that way. What would your expectation? So, you know, is it acceptable for a guy to not come to practice on time? Of course, Coach Parker's answer, I know the answer already. So I'm asking questions. I know the answer to. Obviously, it's not acceptable for the player to not come to practice on time. Is it acceptable for the player to miss practice unexcused without anybody knowing? And again, they'd look at you like, what are you, like, the, 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 I get the same answer all the time. What are you, crazy? And I'm like, I'm trying to establish the guidelines. I want to make sure I know how everything works. So I'm literally writing all this stuff down as I'm going along. And then I would read back and said, okay, so for the weight room, the rules are going to be this. Nobody can be late. Nobody can miss unexcused. And now you've kind of, some of it is psychology. The coach is looking at you going like, well, yeah, of course that's the way it's going to be. Because again, we've established that this is our culture. And then we established, okay, what's the punishment? If so, like with our guys, 20 miles on the airdyne if you were late. 20 miles takes, <laughs> takes slightly under an hour if you're moving. Oh. And it was that simple. Like, okay, if you're late, and I don't care, like if you're late, and I don't have a voicemail because at that time there was no texting. I don't have a voicemail explaining to me academically why you are not here. Like I'm meeting with a professor. 
not, you know, the tea broke down or my, my girlfriend's car broke down. I, those, those things, like, don't even present that excuse. Just start riding. <laughs> and our guys knew it. They would they literally, we have guys who just walk in and get on the bike. They'd walk right in. Everybody would hear it because they knew that they were like, be going crazy. And the guy would just walk in and get on the bike and start riding. Like, okay, I, I screwed up and, you know, I, I'm going to be responsible. But the interesting thing is, at times I was working for the Bruins or working someplace else. And I said, same rules for me. If I'm late for a workout, I'll ride for an hour. And I walked in one day, I was sitting in traffic. Like somebody broke down on Star Drive. And I was like saying to myself, no, I'm going to have to ride a freaking hour. Oh and I got guys more excited for that workout than they'd ever been. <laughs> and I put my airdyne right out in the middle of the weight room. And I got on and I just started riding. And then I started explaining to everybody what to do. Okay, do this, do this, do this. And I rode the whole hour that they worked out. And the boys and so- loved it. And so I think that part is part of it, too, in terms of your ability. I always sweated with the guys. I never lifted with them, but I always conditioned with them when I was younger. I'd go up. You could talk to Joe Sacco and guys like that and say, yep, Mike, you know, I ran 440s. I ran 880s. I ran everything they ran. I ran. I did it all the time. Because, again, you know, if you're a, if you're a fat slob or you're out of shape and you're trying to tell guys how to be in shape, that's not going to work. Guys aren't going to respect you. But when you go out and beat them or something – and I'd always like I'd make a point I'd beat all the freshmen in September because I knew I'd never beat them again. <laughs> <laughs> We're recruiting good enough athletes. If we recruit somebody that I beat for more than a month, we made a huge mistake. Right? <laughs> but in September, you know, we're gonna we used to do stu- you know stupid stuff that we'd never do anymore. But we might do six four forties on the track at that time, and I would deliberately crush some of the freshmen because. I was like, you know, something you're going to live. Then they'd look at me like this old bastard can do this. Like, there's no way I can't not be able to do this. But all of that stuff was part of the creation of the culture. Like we created and our guys will play an amazing culture. And then we started to win. And then we started to win in the third period. And then we started to tell guys the reason they won in the third period, because they worked harder than everybody else. Our guys believed, they literally believed that they could win any game, almost regardless of the deficit or regardless of the situation. Like, we work harder than everybody else. We're in way better shape than everybody else. We will win this game at the end. And as I said, we did that. The bad part for me, the thing I screwed myself, if you look at Hockey East right now, almost everyone in Hockey East interned for me. No way. Yeah, Mike Kamala's at Merrimack. Russ DeRoster is at BC. Devin McConnell is at Lowell. Um, Rajesh Patel is at Quinnipiac. He's actually in the ECAC. But, yeah, if you go down the list, the guy at Providence, at one point, the whole Final Four – was all guys that had interned with me. Matt Shaw at Denver was an intern of mine. Danny Gableman at Union was an intern of mine. Um, Rick Blackadar at Providence was an intern of mine. So we had legit, at some points, every strength coach in the Final Four was somebody that had at one point or another interned at BU. So it wasn't an advantage as much for us anymore because there were a lot of other people who knew. And the thing I always loved is people, the teams that didn't embrace it. It's like, that's perfect. I'm so glad because... We'll keep beating that team. We'll beat that team forever. Wow. Because they get it. And that, our guys got it. Yeah, that's crazy. And you talk about being a mentor to all these people that um, were are now in the business. You know, What was that like being a mentor for them? And, and could you kind of see things in them that you knew um, were going to translate where they can run their own team someday? And, and how did you take that responsibility as somebody that was established in the business to, to mentor um, people that were outside or people that wanted to eventually get up to a kind of role that you were in. I just thought that's naturally what you do. I mean, I looked at that when you look at 
every good coach that I knew in every sport did that. Yeah. So I, I think that was what's expected of you is that these guys who train under you are going to then go and be able to go someplace else and be really good at that. And I guess, I mean, you, you know, you look at the, the BU coaching tree, the guys that have been there with Coach Parker, you look at, you know, guys that have worked at any, you know, of the great programs, they've always, their assistants have always gone on to do good things. So I expected the kids that were helping me out to go on and do really good things. Yeah. I don't, I never had any other expectation of that. I think some part of it was just being able to find these guys. Okay. How do you find the guy, the job, find the guy, the next job. And it's really funny Rajesh Patel, who I think is one of the best strength and conditioning guys in the field. But if you've ever met Rajesh, he is a not very large Indian man. And I remember the first time the guy was asking me, the guy at um, Quinnipiac was asking me about him. I said, hey, this guy's unbelievable. He is going to kill it at Quinnipiac. I said, but you got to get ready for the fact that this guy's going to show up and he's five foot four Indian. And the guy, you know, because it's so, especially at that time, people were so hung up on looking the part. And I was always kind of trying, having to overcome the looking the part thing, because I never really looked the part. I mean, I'm five, whatever, nine, I'm 180, I balding, glasses. But you were talking about sort of your prototypical strength and conditioning coach. I was not it. And so I was always kind of pushing for those kind of guys. But it, it, it's funny now, even Mike Potenza who's in San Jose, I still remember the conversation when San Jose was looking to hire him. The guy in San Jose, Timmy Burke, was like, Mike, you know, he was a soccer player. I'm like, the guy's like, you're going to love the guy. He's going to be unbelievable. He's been there. Mike's been there now probably 15 years. But in the beginning, everybody was talking, you know, he's a soccer player. He can't skate. He's 5'4". There were so many of these stupid things that people were worried about because they felt like, you know, it's like football. Well, the strength coach has to be like six foot 280 with a shaved head. And you know, be able to make really mean faces and yell loud, and it's like, no, that has nothing to do with being a good strength coach. And I don't care if that's football, basketball, baseball, or ice hockey. You need somebody that can coach. You need somebody that's smart. And, you know, it would be like picking your hockey coaches and thinking, oh, I need a guy that looks like a fighter. <laughs> like, you don't need that. You, you need a guy that can recruit. You need a guy that understands systems. It's not any different in our field. But for a long time, it was perceptually very different. But I mean, I'm I'm just super proud of these guys in terms of how well everybody's done. And I do think a big part of it was initially being in that environment and realizing, I always say, you have to realize how to create culture. Because that, and again, Cornell, I used to always laugh because I had Doug Murray one summer trained with me. Oh, wow. And uh, I asked him about it. And I won't even tell you what he said because it was extremely indelicate and I could not say it on a podcast without <laughs> all of us in trouble. But I was like, Doug, you guys physically beat us. You had Steve Babby and uh, that was Paoletti, Paolini, Paolini, whatever it is. yep, Sam Paolini. They were big. I mean, they were big and they were tough. And I can remember literally one time we played you guys, you know, in the mid-year and just got shit kicked. <laughs> just physically beat and we thought we had a, you know, we had a smaller team. We, we weren't, you guys were structured differently. You guys had kind of a big Canadian, you know, you were almost a freaking football team the size. And we were smaller. We had a lot of guys, 175, 180, who could really skate, really make plays. And you guys just absolutely crushed us in midseason. And he said that, you know, that was our culture. We were big. We were strong. We were hard to play against. That's what, that's what we wanted to be. And, and it was like, yeah, and you were. <laughs> 
a lot of ways we were we were you know we were getting more of like the top 18 year olds out of the u.s and we were smaller and we were faster and we were probably more creative but we would struggle sometimes against that really hard to play against team like a cornell that that'd be a real tough matchup for us at any point in time but it was one of those ones you know in the ncaa you're like Ooh, don't don't get them you know give us I, you know, you'd much rather see Michigan or North Dakota or somebody like that who was structured a little bit more like you than you would be to look at a team like Cornell and think, now nah, these kids are going to be 28 years old and you know played nine years in junior and they're going <laughs> to they're going to play way 240 and and they were just beasts. Um, well, no, that's that's awesome, and uh, I can certainly appreciate what you were talking about with some of your strength coaches. So I'm I'm five foot four, and uh, it's actually when when Coach Schaefer hired me back as a coach at, at Cornell, he gave me some crap. As in when uh, you know I would go and talk to some recruits and their families, they would think I was the stick boy and not the assistant coach coming to try and recruit them. So uh, I can certainly appreciate a little bit of that. But uh, um, Jeff, well, I know I know I touched on. It's funny, Mike, you said, I bet you don't have kids listening to this, but actually, I, I don't know about Tove, but here in St. Louis, a ton of the kids that I coach and train in the in the youth AAA hockey world listen to this um, because, you know, we're interviewing people that can help them. And I asked you that question, you know, what would you tell a coach who couldn't afford, um, you know, bringing in a strength coach or a personal trainer? Um, like, do you think that someone who has no background in the strength or personal training industry could read your book and then apply that to how to train a hockey team. Um, Cause I mean, that book changed how I train guys and it's so laid out very simply. Like, do you think that's something that, you know, just an average Joe yes, yes, could do? You do it. The biggest thing, and I, I've said this a lot in the last couple of years, is resisting the urge to be an idiot is the biggest problems in our field in terms of trying to turn it into CrossFit or trying to make people puke or trying Again, if you if you think about, I, I think the biggest thing is if you think about what you would want to do as a hockey coach, and then you do that in the weight room, you're going to be fine. Because again, if you ask yourself, would I, what would I tolerate in a practice session, and then what would I tolerate in a lifting session? So if you said, okay, you know, guys can shoot the puck any way they want, they can just whack at it; it doesn't make any difference. You know, technique doesn't matter. Guys can skate any way they want. I don't really care. You know, if their feet are three feet apart and they're double running down the ice, I don't care. Like there's, but in that sometimes what we do when we go into the weight room is suddenly there's no rules. There's no accountability. We were very big on like, hey, this is the right way to do it. And the right way to do it is the right way to do it. And the wrong way to do it is the wrong way to do it. And with kids, you have to establish that very, very early on in terms of this is right. This is wrong. This is how you do it. This is what we're worried about. This is what we're not worried about. And you can't say stupid things. Like, again, I spent probably the half of my career. People in the early on said, oh, don't train with Mike Boyle. They'll make you train like a football player. They'll make you do squats and run and jump on things and run sprints. And, you know, all you need to do is do wrist curls. Legitimately, like, I'd have guys who come in and they, they're like, you know, what are we doing wrists? And I'm like, when you can skate. Like, when you're a really, really good skater, then I'll let you worry about your wrists. <laughs> guys, all the time, you're never going to get a puck ever. So what are you worried about? Because you stink at skating. You can't. <laughs> and this game is all about skating, right? And all about lower body strength, and all about. And so, I think that's the biggest thing is just looking like if you looked at the book and said, "Okay, I always." And again, you said kids listen, but I mean, it's not. They've never heard the word shit before. But I, <laughs> it's like it, training is strength training is really simple. 
it's either shitty technique or it's not. And I always say to somebody, I get three dogs. If I took you out in the backyard and I pointed to some dog shit on the ground and said, is that, does that look like shit to you? You'd probably be like, yeah, it does. looks just like shit. I'd be like, okay, not hard, right? You know, if I brought you back inside and I showed you ice cream, I said, does that look like ice cream to you? You'd be like, yeah, that's definitely ice cream. I, I, I'd be like, can you confuse the two of those? You'd be like, no, I don't think I'd ever make that mistake. That's the weight room, right? You just look at a guy and you'd be like, oh, that looks like shit. You shouldn't do that. You're going to get hurt. That's not good. And then you look at somebody else. I always think, like, oh, that looks exactly the way I want it to look. That's ice cream. That's perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And in the beginning with kids, it has to be all you've got to get them to worry about is, like I always say, like I have a 13-year-old son. And I'm always like, what, I, what matters to me is how well you do. I don't care how much weight you do. I'm fighting with him all the time because he's a 13-year-old kid. What does he want to do? Right, he wants to right. try to lift as much weight as he can. Right. And my thing is, no, I, you need to lift the weight well. Because when you're 16, when you're 17, when you're 18, your ability to lift weights well is going to really come in handy. But if you can't lift at all by the time you get to that age and you're sloppy, then you're going to get hurt. You're going to be that kid who's got a hip problem or a back problem or a shoulder problem down the road because you were an idiot in the weight room. So I think that's the biggest thing is establishing the same types of parameters that you would establish from a hockey standpoint and thinking, and that's what we said, can somebody learn? Yeah. Learn what a good split squat looks like? Yeah. Can somebody learn what a good push up looks like? Yeah. Can somebody learn what a good chin up looks like? Yeah. Can somebody learn what a good box jump looks like? Yeah. I, you know, I don't think any of these things, if we said let's lay out six or seven kind of fundamental things and we're going to tell you what those things are supposed to look like. And then your only job is recognition. Good or bad? Nope. Okay, that's too heavy. You know, stop. You know, like we do push ups. How many are I going to do? As many good ones as you can. Because I know with my son's age, if they can get 10 good ones, I'm happy. Right. They might be able to do 40 or 50, you know, looking like a seal yeah. up in the air and their ass down. But that's not what I want to have happen. So I, I guess you know, I could belabor the point forever, but it, it is not that complicated in my mind. It, we can make it way more complicated, but particularly when you're trying to start a program, it's not hard. Get the kids in the weight room twice a week, start teaching them the fundamentals, explain to them how it is going to work. We're going to do things correctly. If we're not going to be idiots. We're not going to worry about how much weight we can lift. We're not going to cheat to try to lift more weight. We're going to get good at lifting. Then once we get good at lifting, then we're going to get strong. It's, to me, easy. And that's what I said. I look at guys like Jeff Jackson or guys who kind of had to do it on their own in some of these programs. Because, again, go back and look. There were, you know, Northern Michigan, Lake State. There were schools... In the 90s, it didn't have strength coaches. They didn't have full-time strength coaches. They had assistant coaches performing those tasks. And they were just trying to do the best they could do. Get their, you know, get the kids in the weight room. Teach them the basic fundamental stuff they need to do. And then the biggest thing, everybody should read Slight Edge. Jeff Olson's book. Slight Edge is awesome. Because what Jeff Olson says in Slight Edge is Slight Edge principle number one, show up. Slight Edge principle number two, show up consistently. Because I used to tell my guys, even in the NHL, hey, you want to you want to stay strong all year, you want to stay injury free every year, show up, get in the weight room twice a week. Right. It's not going to be complicated at all. And then if we can add some layers on that of better programming, it's going to get better and better. But if you can say, hey, I'm going to get my kids in the weight room two days a week, every week. You know, one of the things we did at BU, never cancel the workout ever. Coach Parker would cancel practice before he canceled lifting. Because I tell them, guys, you know, guys don't practice. That's great. 
Guys don't lift. They're sore the next week. They don't want to lift again. So we can't afford, we can't miss weight workouts. And again, he understood that and he got to the point where sometimes he kind of be like, I don't want to go on the ice today. We'll just lift. And our guys understood that. that okay. Today might be a, you know, an off an off day, quote unquote, but it was never an off day. If we were scheduled to lift, we lifted. And that's how I am with my son. Like my 13-year-old is getting strong because we don't miss. We go, we go Tuesday, Thursday, every week. And now he's got like six of his friends that go with him. We got one of them's a girl. I could send you videos of this girl. She's a 14-year-old girl. She can do 11 chin-ups. She did five with two and a half pounds the other day on the belt. She gobbled squatted 70 pounds for 20 the other day with the boys. She can clean 100 for five. She's oh got a 22-inch vertical jump. But she shows up. She's an unbelievable athlete. She shows up with the boys every day. And she does what the boys do with no, like I said, she's, she's the cat that you see running around with dogs and she doesn't know she's not a dog. She has no idea that she's not as good as the rest of these kids. And, but, and people see her and they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, obviously she's a real good athlete. She's going to probably be a division one player, but she shows up. And so much of success is showing up. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. That's I mean, that's great advice. You know, we have, we have, uh, some older school coaches here in St. Louis and, and they'll can't, they want to cancel workouts all the time to, to be on the ice. And some of these kids in St. Louis, they play triple A hockey and then they play high school hockey and high school hockey in St. Louis is not very good. Unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's good for those guys where that's their level, but I'm telling these guys who are, you know, kids who want to play in the USHL and kids who want to play division one, like you should only be practicing with your triple A team a couple times a week and then spend the rest of your energy in the gym, like doing prehab, doing rehab. If you're injured, working out, getting stronger, like continuing to develop your bodies, because that's going to be the difference maker. Not if you skate three more times in a week and, you know, you're overworking your hips and your groins and then and then they're wondering why all their groins are tight and stuff like that. What kind of advice would you give to those? I, mean, I know you just said, like, show up. The, the weight room's important, but. Sometimes I have a hard time getting through to these kids just how important the gym is because all they think is hockey, 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 hockey. Well, one of the things I would say to everybody, all you got to do is look at the league and realize that if you're not getting bigger and stronger, you're not playing. So this summer uh, I had probably 20 NHL, AHL guys, but the three best players are big. Eichel's big. Miles Wood's big. Jimmy Vesey's big. Two Miles Wood and Eichel are the two fastest, and they're the two fastest by a significant margin. You look at a kid like Eichel. Eichel's got a 36-inch vertical jump. He can run, he can run like a 105-10, flying 10, which is just like it's like track fast. He'd be sub, he'd be sub one, which would be a really good track time if we gave him more of a fly. You know, if we gave him 20 meters to 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 ramp up to run that 10-meter fly. Miles Wood, 36-inch vertical jump. 105, 104, and, you know, even Jimmy BC, you know, still probably like low 30s vertical jump, you know, one, two something in the 10. I mean, these guys are, they are big and they are strong and they are fast. And if you think you can get there without being big and strong and fast, you are wrong. Because I would say try to find, everybody loves to find the outlier and say, oh, this guy's playing, he's only five to seven, you know, the, and even I would go back like a guy like St. Louis, people like St. Louis was short. And I'm like, yes, short, but not small. Just Google his legs. Google his legs. <laughs> he looks like a freaking centaur. Have you ever <laughs> seen 
tree trunks. Centaur, like literally half man, half horse. First time I ever saw him, I looked, I said, I, I didn't want to say something unkind, but I was thinking to myself, you are the most oddly shaped human I've ever seen. <laughs> because you have the lower body of a horse and the upper body of a normal man. It was uncanny. I've never, I've only seen one guy like him ever, this guy Robert Newhouse, who played for the Dallas Cowboys, had the same body that um, St. Louis had in terms of just incredibly disproportionate. But people love to look at that guy. And even he, he struggled to get to the NHL. No one remembers that part. No one remembers Calgary sending him to the minors or the five years he was in the minors or the number of chances he didn't get. Instead, they just look at, oh, he was MVP, and he's 5'7", 5'6", probably 5'6". Instead of looking and saying, yeah, but he didn't get a fair shake probably half his career because of his height. And then eventually, I mean, you talk about proving people wrong, he had to really work his butt off to prove people wrong. And by the time he was done, they were really, really wrong. There were a lot of guys who look and say, Anybody in the NHL could have signed it, any team. And one did. <laughs> right, right. Right, right. You know, and, and there's, um, there's, you know, there's so many of those guys. And I think that's part of it, too, is telling the kids the success stories. Finding, I always think, you got to find out what makes that guy tick. And then, and then hone in on that part in terms of what do they want. You get a kid, you want to be a divisional player, you've got to be big and strong. And you, you point out the examples of these guys that, you know, this guy can, this guy's size and this guy's strength so that they start to understand, like, this is what I want to be like. Because, again, everybody would like it to be easy, right? Yeah. Who wouldn't? And if they're all going to do is just skate more. And I, you know, I always try to look at guys and think, one of the things we talked about is you want to fill the empty bucket, not the full bucket. And so, you know, if your strength bucket's completely empty and your hockey bucket is full, full and, you know, overflowing at the brim, hey, like, we got to go fill the, the strength bucket. Is that, is that no one's filling that bucket, and and I just think that a big part of it too, like you, for someone like you, I think I built my career on starting with the people who people didn't expect this was going to happen to. <laughs> so even when we started at BU, I I know exactly when the break point was. We have Sean McGecker and Mike Sullivan, Joe Sacco went to the uh, Olympic Development Camp probably in '89 or '90, whatever it was, and. We had had our program put in place. You know, we're doing squats. We're doing cleans. We're doing plyos. We're running sprints. We're training like track sprinters at that time. And we show up and they do – Jack Blatherwick does on-ice speed testing. And we end up one, two, four. So we there's 80 guys there. And BU guys are first, second, and fourth. Number 79 is Tony Monty, who's one of our incoming freshmen. Wow. He hasn't trained with us yet. So he's literally at the very bottom of the list in terms of speed and acceleration. He wasn't at the end. By the time he got to the NHL, he was a totally different guy. But he looked like a 22-inch vertical jump to a 32 in a year. Because he, he was an unreal athlete. He was one of those guys who was like, all you had to do was sort of, you know, grease the skids and get him going. He was so, he was, he was so athletic that he ruined it for a lot of But we had other guys on his team who got frustrated because Tony just showed up, never had done anything ever. And within a month was better than them at everything. Wow, wow. Some guys are just, that's what you get. I mean, you get guys that are just athletes. Athletes are athletes in terms of, you know, whether it's, you know, we've had kids like Pryder and Ike and Miles, <laughs> these guys. I mean, they're just better athletes than most people. And then you train them right and they end up, you know, on the ridiculous end of the spectrum. But my thing is that you can push everybody. I think you can move everybody 10 to 20%. So you could look at a guy and say, yeah, maybe he's in the top 
25 percent. All right, I can push him up into the top five percent, the top 15 percent by having him do the right thing. If you give me a kid who's in the bottom, the bottom quarter, you know, he's he's a Division three player at best. I don't think we're gonna make a Division one player out of that kid, but. If you get a kid who's got some athleticism, I think you can make really big changes. And and I'm still not sure how big, like we're playing around the other thing, and this goes into something else. Work on speed. We don't, and this is, if anybody said, what's your biggest learning experience of the year? I, I got friendly with this track coach from outside of Chicago, this guy, Tony Holler. He's a high school track coach and a chemistry teacher. But he was very big. He wrote an article, the first article I wrote was called Record, Rank, and Publish. And one of the things that he talked about was that we need to record everybody's times, then we need to rank them, then we can publish them. Literally what the article says. And because one of the things you get, I want to get faster. What's the first question? How fast are you? So if we haven't timed you, and I think in hockey, if I was, if I was back in the hockey world right now, I'd be timing every single practice. At the beginning of practice, I'd be timing goal to blue line. Two or three reps for every kid every time. Because... Again, how are they? Gonna, how are you going to know if they're getting faster if you're not timing them and then timing them again? You won't. And you know, some people were doing sprints. I was like, well, you're not doing sprints. You're doing efforts in the let's just say 70, 80, maybe ninety percent range, not hundred. You're probably not getting that kid to go as fast as you can. As soon as you pull the stopwatch out, <laughs> everything changes. Right. So, I said, Nick Benino is a perfect example. I remember when Nick Benino came to BU, people said he could be a pro if he was faster. And I went and watched him, first time in practice, and I was like, hey, he's not a pretty skater. But I wasn't quite sure that he was slow. So then we go out, we do our first timing, and he's right in the middle of the pack. He's definitely not the slowest kid on our team. I thought he was going to be the slowest because all everybody kept saying was, oh, he's, a, he's not a good skater. But in reality, I went back to the coaches and I said, just so you understand, I said, one of the things we do in hockey is we confuse the rate at which somebody's feet are moving with the rate at which they're covering ice. And they don't have anything to do with each other. Our fast foot energy line guy last on our team. Little guy, undersized guy, you know, 5'4", and everybody's like, oh, he's fast. He's quick. He was neither quick nor fast. <laughs> I always said he was Michael Flatley in Lord of the Dance. <laughs> His feet were moving, you know. That's in hockey. Like, keep your feet moving. Keep your feet moving is not always a really good cue, right? Because right. what you really want is keep skating. Because you can move your feet without using your edges. You can use your feet, move your feet, and not use your blades. Right. And you right. Don't go anywhere. You're not good. Sure. Sure. Exactly. Whereas you know, you look and think, like I said, a kid like me, you know, I was like, not pretty, but he's pretty fast. You guys are going to be wrong about him. And they ended up, they were really wrong. You think he just played a 600 game or something like that? Yeah, he's, been, he, he's been pretty good. Well, that, that kid that you're talking about at BU, that short kid, that was me. <laughs> I was yeah, like, that's what I was thinking. I was, I was that kid. Everybody would always, because we would actually do some testing on the ice too, and I was never at the top, but everybody would always come up and be like, oh my God, your speed. And I'd be like, yeah, sure. No, not really. <laughs> I just work hard. I <laughs> saw. So. But it's true, and that's the part of the problem. And I could tell you this guy's name, but I wouldn't say it. I'll tell you off the air because he's still involved in hockey. But he was, it was a perfect example of that in terms of, you know, one of the things I would do too just from a perception standpoint, I'd ask the coach, I'd say, okay, I want you to rank everybody from 1 to 25 in speed, then we'll test them, and then we'll see, you know, how, what your perception of speed is to 
what the speed actually is. The interesting thing, and this is what happened to us. So this kid, Johnny McCarthy, who was captain for us, 2009 national championship, just played his 500th uh, AHL game for San Jose. He's played a bunch of NHL games, but he was, I mean, a great, unbelievable athlete, great player for us at BU. He was always our five-on-three power play guy, uh, penalty, penalty kill guy. You know, and and I'd say, well, why do we use Johnny five-on-three? And, and, and he gets there. He can get there. And I'd be like, but then I was like, so he's the fastest guy? No, he's not the fastest guy, but he gets there. You know, and they were always like, because he's willing. He's one of these guys, you know, he works really hard. He's willing to make the effort to get there. They were wrong. We tested speed. He was the fastest guy. Wow. I said, the reason he gets there is because he's the fastest guy and he can get there. We got other guys. They might have just as much will to get there as he does, but they don't get there in the same amount of time that he does. So as a result, they don't block they don't get a stick they, in the legs. They look like they're going fast, like but they're right. actually, you know, not. Yeah, exactly. Well, wow. well, well, Coach, you've we've taken up a lot of your time here, and we certainly appreciate you um, coming on and, and talking with us. And, and the last question that that I kind of had for you is, you know, I went onto your website, bodybyboil.com, which is great. So for for anybody that's interested in strength and conditioning or hockey or, or any sport for that matter, um, there's a ton of education and, and some great videos and things like that. I, I would really recommend going to it. But I was taking a peek at some of your alumni that have played pro hockey and. Um, you know, I mean, it's the list is incredible. You know, Bill Guerin, Brendan Shanahan, Cam Neely, Jeremy Rona, Keith Kachuk, Raymond Bork, um, Joe Thornton, Chris Kreider, Keith Yandel. And, and what I see here is, you know, not only, um, you know, guys that have obviously been at the top of their profession in hockey, but also some pretty amazing characters <laughs> as well. Just seeing them in the media and having met a couple of them and, and things like that. Do you have any just laugh out loud stories of, of any of these guys in the weight room in, in the years that you've had them? Give you laugh out loud Joe Thornton stories for the rest of the day. But <laughs> the funny, so, and I love Joe. Joe has been, Joe has really grown into a tremendous gentleman like just he was always a fun kid but he was goof he was an absolute goofball he was really like he, he just would exhaust you and i was trying to get him when i was first because he was i had him when i was at the bruins and he was a rookie and he's playing on the fourth line pat burns has got him on the fourth line with kenny baumgartner and somebody i can't even remember who he was but because they wanted him it was kind of like starting the mailroom kid you know learn learn the hard way sort of job and a couple times he was even a healthy scratch. Imagine that guy, like he was a healthy scratch. And you think who played and he didn't at some point. But we'd have to work out because if you're a healthy scratch, you got to work out before the game. And he would literally, I'd be like, come on, Joe, we got to work out. He'd be like, okay, just a minute. And at that time, we actually, we still had donuts in the locker room. And he would literally stuff two whole donuts in his mouth to piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then crush me on the bike like crush me on the bike and I would look at him and I'd be like you're like a child you should throw up you should be puking all over yourself because you just ate two honey dip donuts in like 30 seconds <laughs> and swallowed them like a German shepherd and then you could hop on the bike and just crush it I mean and that, another time I found him we were working out in the summer and I can't find him the guy's like where are they like, he's in the office why is he in the office and they were like he ordered pizza he was hungry <laughs> takeout guy show up with a pizza during the workout which he took into the office and proceeded to eat I come in the office we had this little teeny office at that time and there's Joe like he's like Mike I, I was starving I couldn't 
But but what you realize with guys like that is they're kids. He's 18 years old. He should have been a freshman in college. Instead, he's in the NHL. And stuff, and this was, again, this was a long time ago. You think Joe now, I think he's almost 40. So it must have been 97, I guess, was his rookie year. So things were even you know more different then than they are now. But you look at guys like that and just think it was amazing to realize that you were trying to take these these young men and make them into men because it was a whole different job than in college because they, they just, you know, he, like I said, he was the first overall pick. And now you got to try to corral that first overall pick who has all the ability in the world and try to get him to understand that eating right matters and all these things that have never had to matter to him because he was just better than everybody else suddenly matter. Yeah. Yeah. Coach, I, I, I want to ask you one more question before we let you go. Um, just because, you know, like I said, a lot of the kids that I train listen to this, and a lot of kids Tove train listens to this, coaches them. Um, these kids are playing like four games in a weekend that I'm that I'm coaching now. They're 18 years old, and I find that you know they're kids. Like you said, I got to slap the you know metaphorical donut out of their mouth three times a day. Um, what would you say for recovery purposes if they're playing four games in two days? What kind of things would you tell eighteen-year-old kids that are probably the most important points? Like, well, the, the biggest, the most important point um, is eat like an adult. You got to stop eating like a child. You can't be eating chicken fingers and French fries and drinking a Gatorade after you play. Like, you just can't do that. And and I think that's the the biggest thing is trying to get these kids to take some responsibility to be self-responsible like okay this is your job your job to hydrate and your job to eat and but it's i will tell you it's a battle i, I go through it with my own son i mean he ate a cheese he played in the lacrosse tournament yesterday and he ate a cheeseburger between the semifinal and the final so i think there's you have to understand the reality of the situation but you also have to realize i think i've always said our job as a strength and conditioning coach is we fight human nature for a living that's what we do. We fight slacking off. We fight taking the easy route out. We fight shitty eating. That's our. That's what we do. And and you just got to keep doing that. And you've got to get kids to realize, particularly as they get older, that okay, it's one thing. You got a U14 team. It, it may be a little bit more of a struggle. You got kids that are you know U18 kids that are thinking, you know, they're trying to go to college. That kid should be able to realize that okay, I got to bring some food with me. I've got to be able to make some choices because I really am going to make a difference. I was reading something the other day. And I thought if I was doing this again and playing in these multi-tournament kind of settings, I'd bring a scale. Because I was just reading in one of my friends, uh, it was actually a golf book, but it's called Hole-in-One Nutrition, which is a really good nutrition book by guy Robert Yang that I know wrote it. But he was talking about the effects of dehydration and how significant dehydration could be on hand-eye. Think about hand-eye and the ability to shoot the puck. And then you think if you got a guy who really is dehydrated, a guy who's lost... It's like 1% of your body weight. So two pounds, 1.8, 1.6 pounds can significantly alter your hand-eye coordination. But that's the kind of stuff I think gets kids to catch on when you realize that, okay, if you're not, you know, this is going to make a really big difference, particularly when you think the best shooters are about 25%. You know, look at the NHL stats. The best, the guy that's the best shooting percentage in the league is probably shooting at 25%. Now you think if that, you know, if you're a normal guy, you might be 10%. You might be getting a goal on every 10 shots. And then you think that your accuracy is decreasing by 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% because you're dehydrated. That's pretty significant. So I think some of it is 
uh, one of my teachers years ago used to call them teachable moments, finding teachable moments for these kids and using those teachable moments. Because sometimes you feel like, oh my God, I'm wasting my breath, I'm preaching to the choir or whatever, but you're not. Much like in parenting, you're not. Kids are listening, and if you sat them down after every game and said like, okay, water first, you know, I don't want guys drinking Gatorade, I don't want any Red Bulls, I don't want guys drinking coffee, and then real food, I want, you gotta eat some food, I don't want chicken fingers and french fries. Yeah, some kids aren't gonna listen to you, but some kids are. And what I found is the ones that do listen, end up doing better. And eventually, other other people start listening because other people, one, I, as I said, I started this and then we get sidetracked, but I built my business on success by t- taking people who weren't supposed to. I, Mike Sullivan's the perfect example. If someone had said, like, Mike Sullivan ended up, now this goes back to the old days when they had the actual NHL faster skater competition. If you look it up, Mike Sullivan came in second twice when he was in Calgary to Mike Gardner. And if someone had said that Mike Sullivan was going to be the second fastest guy in the NHL based on time, people would have said, no way, not going to happen. He's not a good, he's not a good enough player. He's not a good enough skater. If someone had said he's going to play for 12 years and then he's going to become a coach, then he's going to win back-to-back Stanley Cups, like all, all these things, you would have said, nope, 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 nope. But he listened. He was a guy who always listened. He was a guy who was always a leader. He was a guy who was always doing what you asked him to be doing. You know, Coach Parker always talks about doing the next right thing. Like, Sully was always a next right thing guy. So I never I never, for once thought, oh, he's probably not going to be successful. But I also probably never thought he'd be as successful as he was, it, it, particularly from a, an on-ice standpoint in terms of he was, like I said, the second fastest guy in the NHL. And this was this was when it wasn't a popularity contest. This was, you know, you had to win your team, and then if you won your team, you went to the All-Star game. And when you went to the All-Star game, you competed against the best guy from every team. But we had five guys one time, five of you guys, at that competition. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? Because then I said, wait, I'm not saying I can make you faster. I can make you faster. Then that, so that was a lot to kind of hang your hat on at that time when you could say to guys, no, you know, Joe Sacco is the fastest guy in the Maple Leafs. Sean McGeffrey is the fastest guy in the Penguins. Like these were, they were the fastest skaters in the league, and they're beating, they're beating all the Russians. You know, they're beating everybody that's supposed to be great skaters. I beat you guys were winning team competitions all the time. And as I said, one of our guys for you know for a couple of years was one of the fastest guys in the NHL. And he wasn't a guy that anybody, you know, he wasn't a Connor McDavid. He wasn't a guy that anybody would have predicted if you said, okay, handicap it for me, give me the top ten guys who are going to be in those positions. He wouldn't have been one of those guys. But when the stopwatch comes out, he was one of those guys. And the main reason he was was because he worked his ass off. He did everything that we asked him to do all the time the way we asked him to do it. And as you said, when you read through, it's interesting, you read kind of through that alumni list. But there was something that drew those guys to us. The interesting thing, too, is I had seven guys that trained with me regularly during the summer who ended up being player development directors for NHL teams. And a lot of them now are assistant general managers or head coaches. And you realize it's because we always had guys who took it serious. We didn't guys who didn't take it serious generally didn't come to train with us. If you didn't why well, I had other guys and again, I, you know, it doesn't it doesn't help to name names, but I had guys who came once. And you can tell immediately it was like, Oh, that was not for me. That was definitely not what I was looking for today. And they never came back. I had other guys like, you know, Tommy Fitzgerald, who's assistant GM in, in New Jersey, was, you know, one of my first guys who made it to the NHL 
but you know, we've had so many guys like that who went on. And you know, Chris Clark. Chris Clark is another. You know, he's a great North Country name right there. Oh yeah, Clarkson University, Hartford, Connecticut. Again, not a guy that anybody thought would be a, a captain in the NHL, right? Or would end up. You know, I think he's still director of play development for Columbus. But same thing. Worked his absolute ass off. Showed up every day. You know, Chris Drury's an assistant GM now for uh, the Rangers. There's so many of these guys. It seems like there's one on every team. BU has um, taken over the NHL, that's for sure, at the <clears> at the <throat> management position. <laughs> we were going to go down to Nashville, and I was looking at the thing, and I said, oh, yeah, Jeff Kelty's the assistant GM in Nashville. I forgot. Like, we have so many guys that are out there now that I forgot they're there. You know, Steve Greeley's in Buffalo. Like, we've had so many of these guys that are actually now moving up in the actual management levels. Um you know, BU guys, but if you include BU guys and then guys that trained with BU guys their whole career, like Clarkie, who was a Clarkson guy, or Fitzy, who played a couple of years at Providence, we had a lot of those types of guys who ended up, you know, Billy, same way, Billy's an assistant GM, Gary in Pittsburgh. There are a lot of these guys, and the biggest thing, obviously super talented guys, really good character guys, but guys with really good work habits. And as you said, I mean, Brendan Channing, Brendan's the president now, or GM, I don't know what he is of uh, the leagues, but, you know, there's so many of these guys, but, you know, Brendan used to drive an hour to work out. He didn't need to drive an hour to work out. He was doing fine before I ever met him. But he wanted to be better. He wanted to be in the best situation that he could be in. So he drove. So there were so many of these guys. But then the crazy part, I'll leave you with this, because I know he said we'd go an hour, but I had 20 second generation kids training this summer so children of guys that I coached either in the NHL or at BU wow that's unbelievable yeah that's a pretty cool stat that is that's yeah. not a pretty cool stat that's an amazing stat and not yeah. just you know not just the fact that uh, you've been around uh, this long where you're seeing their kids but also that they've you know built a trust in you and you guys have built a trust where they um, you know they feel comfortable sending sending their kids to you so um, that uh, of all the things that you've done um, in terms of the championships and the the people that have gone on to do some amazing things that for you has to be one of the um, probably the coolest statistics that you have huh that will be the coolest statistic until uh until kingston bork shows up and he'll be my third <laughs> generation player he's only five years away wow. probably six or seven and then i'll end up with a kid in the gym whose dad i coached and whose grandfather i coached that's wow. awesome and that's I, unbelievable i will hopefully live long enough to uh to pull that one off so are you gonna are you gonna beat him in some uh 40 yard dashes too or what <laughs> uh, i'll probably, little, I'll probably beat up on a little kid like that when he's 11 you know, probably <laughs> take advantage of it while i can uh, uh, his, that's so he, good there's good hockey genes on his mom's side too so his uh, i think his his mom i forget where the mom played maybe at unh but uh they were all the all of his uh on the mom's side they were all good players too so this kid will probably be if pedigree counts, and again, look at the NHL draft, right? You know, look at Keith's kids. You know, look at Nylander's kids. Look, I mean, there's so many, you know, Feligno. You could literally go down the list and think there's been a pretty good second generation. You know, it's not a bad draft pick to to take a flyer on the uh, son of a pretty good NHL player. Because I forget, I think three years ago, two years ago, I looked, and I think there were five first-rounders whose dads played in the league. You know, DeBrosk. And think some of them got better hands than their dads. The brusque and Domi, right? <laughs> Just a little bit. Your dads used their hands for other for other tasks for most of their career. Those kids have been uh, pretty skilled, and there's just a lot of those kids. 
but it's cool to be able to, to have those kids around. Like, you know, I have Jimmy Vesey's kids. I have Vincey's kids. I have Bobby Carpenter's kids. I have Joe Sacco's kids, Sean McGeckern's kids, Scott Chance's kids, you know, right down the line. Well, you know, the good thing for us, a lot of them are still in the area. And, uh, and obviously the kids chose to play hockey, so it's fun. That's awesome. Well, well, Coach, thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit with us today. Uh, I learned a ton. Um, Jeff has been, you know, looking forward to this this talk here for, for a long time since we set it up. Uh, you're one of his idols. So um, can't, can't thank you enough and uh, keep up the great work and um, look forward to seeing what, uh, what kind of things you have up your sleeve next. All right. Well, great. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right. All take right. care.